But as we learned last week, again, if you weren't with us, while the ultimate meaning of life is not found in anything on this earth, everything is not pointless. Last week, we focused on Solomon's writing, there is a time for everything. In other words, all things have their place, their purpose under the sun. For Solomon, how everything fits into God's eternal plan is a mystery. And therefore, what he's tried to say so far is we need to look at life as a gift to be enjoyed rather than a puzzle to be solved. Now, if you have those Bibles open, just look down for a second. We'll read it in a moment. But today's passage, verse 16, begins, And I saw something else. And what we're looking at today introduces a new idea. But a little bit later on, after Solomon writes this, he's going to once again say there's a time for every activity and every deed. Which is, in other words, saying that what Solomon is about to say that's new has some relevance to what he said before, what we looked at last week. What you're going to find as we read this And this is a a tough passage today. I mean, if you looked at the sermon title, you knew this was going to be a tough one. In the midst of Solomon's belief in the beauty of God's timing, and that's a point he made a little bit earlier in this chapter, in the midst of his belief in the beauty of God's timing, Solomon at the same time perceives a disturbing incongruence, an obvious tension, if you will, between what he hears from the scriptures, what he takes on faith, And yet what he witnesses and experiences day after day in the world. And I think as we read this together, you're going to relate to what he's feeling. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting with verse 16. Let's hear this together. Solomon writes, And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so does, dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun." And I saw all the toil and all the achievement that spring from one's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almost every conversation 
I've ever had with someone who is wrestling with God comes down to one question. How can I believe in a loving and just God when there is so much wickedness, suffering, and death in the world? This is the Solomon, the question that Solomon is asking too. The rose-colored glasses of the first 15 verses in chapter 3 are off. And Solomon cannot look away from the obvious elephant in the room. And I saw something else under the sun, he writes. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Solomon wrestles with the problem of evil, the injustice in this world. If we're honest... And we need to be. As Christians, we cannot help but see the same things Solomon does. Terrorism. Global human trafficking. Ethnic cleansing. Religious persecution. Economic disparity that causes extreme poverty. Racial prejudice. Dishonest and unethical business practices political vice and scandal. Widespread injustice like this can be hard to swallow. And if we stop, if we stop and reflect at a more personal rather than corporate level, the pain, the intensity of the pain, the suffering, the injustice, it only gets worse. A co-worker's addiction or relapse, a marital crisis, or divorce, a neighbor's bankruptcy or foreclosure, a family member's ongoing bout with cancer or dementia, two friends who are now enemies and they refuse to make peace, another church split, another community torn apart. Sometimes we can find ourselves so just caught in wave after wave of circumstances, nearly drowning in story upon story of global calamity and personal tragedy. And daily news like this can challenge our faith in God's sovereignty and goodness. We can struggle. We can struggle to make sense of the darkness in this world, this world we live in, in light of the world we believe is to come. And you're not the first, but in the midst of this tension, often as Christians, we feel the burden of taking over God's PR department, of defending the Lord's reputation to a watching world, and we throw out platitudes, bumper sticker slogans, scriptures that we twist and turn to try to make everything okay. We defend the Lord, don't we? until we reach our own limit of exasperation, right? We defend the Lord until we reach our own limit of frustration, and then we start to question the way God officiates his creation. We cry out, why don't you intervene, Lord? Why don't you make a few calls and keep the game fair? Why do you let, why do you let the bullies, the cheats, the crooks of life win again and again? Bears repeating. Questions like these, 
are valid. They're appropriate. The Bible allows for them. Some of you have maybe heard this before, but maybe some of you are hearing this for the first time. Asking questions like these does not reflect a lack of faith, as we have often been taught, as we are often told. Asking questions like these do not, does not reflect a lack of faith. Asking questions like these reflects us wrestling for a relationship. The caution, as I like to say, and I've said this before, the caution is not to get stuck in the questions. The caution is not to get stuck in the questions. The invitation is to keep seeking, to keep continue pressing into the answers, not always the answers we want, but the answers we are given. And what does Solomon come up with? What does Solomon come up with here? I don't know if you caught this, and if your Bible's still open, you can look down here. Interestingly, Solomon does not blame God. Solomon does not blame God for the lack of goodness and righteousness in the world. This is interesting to me because I find inside the church as well as outside the church, our best answer to the problem of evil tends to put the onus on God, right? That we hold the Lord responsible is evidenced by, again, how we often phrase our questions, right? How could God create a world with such and such? What kind of God would allow so-and-so to exist? We put the blame on God. And in so doing, we doubt the Lord is in control. And we become some of us, fatalistic. God doesn't care. The Lord isn't involved. Or we have our own brand of Christian fatalism. As I've said before, we have this, this idea, well, the world's just going to hell in a handbasket. The world's just going to burn. And yet Solomon, for all his soul searching, for all his frustrations, doesn't go there. Do you catch what he writes? I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Solomon asserts, despite all appearances to the contrary, the Lord has the last word in terms of his creation. From an internal perspective, nobody gets away with it. God sees everything a person does the good and the bad. The Lord alone discerns what we can only guess at, right? The motives of the heart. No, Solomon says there will be a reckoning. There will be a righting of the wrongs. And this is important. Because as human beings, we value justice. At least as a concept, very highly, right? We value justice. Every culture has its sense of justice, even if how it is expressed is different from others. In our own nation, we have a symbol that represents our sense of how justice should be served. It's an image that's found inside courtrooms and outside courthouses. It's the picture. Maybe you see it in your mind's eye. It's the picture of a blindfolded woman who is holding a scale in one hand and a sword in the other. Lady Justice, she is called. 
The scale represents the proper weighing of the evidence. The sword represents exacting justice that can be wielded against either party. And the blindfold represents decisions that should be made objectively and not influenced by any partiality towards either party. We expect justice. We look for it. We cry out when it is not there. But do we ever ask where our compulsion, our sense of justice comes from? What Solomon is teasing out here is it's only because the Lord has given us a thirst for justice and awareness of right and wrong that we can even perceive the absence of justice in our world. In the order and structure by which the Lord created everything, there is a strong impulse towards the right, towards right, and an equally intense reaction against wrong. We debate and wrestle with where that is, but the, those, those impulses, that sense of right and wrong is there. We just may disagree where it begins and where it ends. In other words, beloved, God is just for Solomon. God is just and therefore, we who are created in the image of God, God's image, are intended to reflect and represent our creator through our exercise of justice. If you're not tracking with me, here it is. Solomon, in wrestling with the problem of evil, all of the injustice in the world, doesn't ask, where is God? What's up with the Lord? He asks, what's up with us? What's the deal with humanity? In verse 16, if you have that Bible open, when Solomon writes of the place of judgment, the place of justice, he's specifically referring when he writes this to a human courtroom, wherever our official exercise of justice takes place in a society. Solomon writes, we look for justice, we expect it, but we deal in wickedness. And as chapter 4 begins... That's why we continued reading. As chapter 4 begins, Solomon gets more specific. Instead of acting justly, he writes, we practice oppression. He mentions oppression three times. <laughs> Emphasis in that first verse. Again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. For Solomon... The problem with injustice isn't a God problem. It's a reflection of God problem. It's our problem. It's the problem of sin. For Solomon, injustice exists because of us. Because of our oppression of each other. And oppression, that fancy word, is when we mistreat others. Oppression is when we, in any way, shape, or form, deny or harm the image of God in another person. To make it more tangible, oppression is described in the Bible as cheating, defrauding, robbing, whenever we profit at the expense of another person, whenever we acquire or accumulate something without regard to the needs and rights of another, we are engaging in oppression and we are acting unjustly. Oppression, in other words, is about the abuse of power. Really important you hear this because we often don't associate ourselves with oppression. 
Those are the black-hatted bad guys, right? Solomon doesn't have that contrast. Oppression is about the abuse of power, whatever measure of power we have. Whatever measure of power you have. It's about the abuse of power. It's about using one's power for one's own advantage while taking advantage of the other person. And, and again, for those of us who are still like, this is not my issue at all. Solomon says, if we want to see evidence of our tendency towards oppression, he writes, look no further than what drives each of us in our work, in whatever we do. Solomon writes, and I saw that all toil and all achievement, no, no qualifiers there, by the way, all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. Solomon is calling us out. He's arguing that in the midst of whatever else we may say, in there, the motivation behind our effort, our work in life, is envy. Our envy of others. And again, if you step back, he's on to something. Because ever since the beginning of time, I mean, is anyone going to argue this? Ever since the beginning of time, people have climbed over each other to get to the top. Anyone want to debate this? Companies vie against each other. And look, at, look to what? Eliminate the competition. Employees are out to jump ahead of their co-workers for the sake of their career. That's good business practice. We aim, and this is where we're really going to get sensitive, we aim, maybe we'll never admit it out loud, but we aim to one-up members of our family or our neighborhood with a bigger car, a better vacation, or more impressive news about our kids or our loved ones. We even have an expression, expressions for this. You got to keep up with the Joneses, right? You got to look out for what? Number one. Who's number one? I am. And I look out for number one by making sure I'm number one and you're not. And please tell me, don't tell me, I can do that without oppressing you. I have to oppress you to be on top. Because that's the very nature of my position. I'm on top. Now, I want to bring this back to something we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Because we, Solomon talked about work and achievement, human achievement, if you weren't with us before. And this gets back to, again, biblically, the separation between just having a job and understanding your calling in life. When we see our work, whatever it is, whatever it is, as a job, when that's all you see, whatever you do as, as a job, as a means to an end, rather than a calling, and what's the difference? Again, the difference between a job and a calling is you don't see whatever you do as a means to an end. You see whatever you do as a responsibility given to you by the Lord. Not just as a means to an end, but a responsibility given to you, whatever it is, in order to represent and to reflect his image, his goodness to the world. But when we see whatever we do as just a job and not a calling, of course we will do whatever it takes to get ahead because it's a means to an end. We won't think. I mean, we don't, and this is why this is hard for us because we don't even think, it's not like we consciously are like wringing our hands together. Think, we don't even think about it. Who we're impacting. 
let alone how we're impacting other people. We, we don't even think of it as selfish. Some of you are probably struggling with this word right now because you don't even think of it as selfish. It's, it's just the way things work. That's why we get frustrated. We, you know, we go to the store, we buy the things we buy, we get ticked off when people start talking about, do you know where that came from? Do you know the conditions they were working in when they made that? Do you know how much it cost? Oh, I don't want to hear that. We don't even think about it. That's just the way things work, right? We've accepted it. We don't even think about it as unjust. Everyone does it. And Solomon says, right. Right. Beloved, when Solomon writes about the tears of the oppressed, how they have no comforter, if you're looking down at that verse, when he writes about the tears of the oppressed, how they have no comforter, he repeats that twice. When he says they have no comforter, he's not talking about God. He's talking about us. They have no comforter. He's talking about humanity. He's talking about this, which, which, what, what we're dealing with right now, this second layer of oppression that most of us don't think about, as I said, but we're all guilty of. The first layer of oppression, and it's here, is, is explicit persecution of another person, where we openly attack or injure them. And as far as I know, no one here is guilty of that. Maybe you are. But what Solomon's getting at is this second, deeper layer of oppression where we have no compassion, no kindness, no recognition, no acknowledgement, no respect towards the suffering and hurting around us. We keep our head down and our eyes closed. Our hearts get hardened. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? This will help. Remember when Jesus tells that story? Who, who are the oppressors in that story? Well, the first oppressors are the people who jump the guy on the road, right? And leave him for dead. Take everything and leave him for dead, correct? Right? But when Jesus tells that story, there's another group that's oppressive, right? The people who walk by on the other side of the road. The people who act like that guy's already dead. Hence, the shock and scandal of the real neighbor, the good Samaritan. Beloved, it's so easy. Our hearts get hardened. We, we turn a blind eye. We keep our heads down. And sometimes our hearts can get so hard, we can even lash out against the cries of the poor. Stop whining. Stop complaining. Shut up already. It's not my problem. It's yours. I still remember a time I was pulling off the freeway and and you probably have had this experience, and I know there's all kinds of, we, we could have all kinds of debates taking apart who this individual was, but a person with the sign like we see was just going up near a car, holding up the sign. And I'll never forget the person who rolled down their window and spit at the person with the sign and said, and I apologize for saying this in church, get the hell away from my car. That. Now, none of us may be guilty of that, but what, why? Underneath that is what Solomon is getting at. The problem of injustice isn't a God problem. It's an image of God problem in us. I mean, again, think about Solomon's context, just to take this one more step. Israel's history alone. I mean, do you think of it? Solomon can write about his own history, his own people. He's the king of Israel. In his own history alone, reflects the kind of oppression he's trying to help us to understand. If you know your Bible at all, in the story of Israel, what is the repeated condemnation of the prophets? The consistent rebuke of the Lord through the prophets. Not that they don't know how to do church. 
Not that they don't know how to make sure everything's good in terms of worship practices and traditions. The repeated condemnation of the prophets, which is the voice of God, is for their unjust practices, their blatant and often offensive ignorance of the poor. It's not that they're going out and literally taking things out of people's hands or beating people up. It's the fact that they literally are worshiping, praising God, and yet at the same time ignoring the cries of those who are suffering and hurting around them. Hence, in a scripture you probably know, God says to the prophets, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy. You know, for me, when I read this, and again, if, I hope you have your Bible open because this is important to, to understand what I'm about to say. I actually perceive a double meaning, and this is just Pastor Chris here. I perceive a double meaning when Solomon writes, as for humans, God tests them so they may see that they are like the animals. Now, he writes more, and, and I could talk, and I'm not going to this morning about what he's going to get at here, but I see a double meaning in that. Here's what I mean. In our repeated exploitation of each other, whether it comes in the form of direct assault or just the willful ignorance of the plight, the needs of others around us, Solomon, I think, is saying we act like animals. Don't we even say it's a dog-eat-dog world? Isn't that what we say? Beloved, to treat another person inhumanely is to act inhuman which is to act less than we are and to represent God less than he is. The inhumanity of the world is the injustice of the world. It is the problem of evil. It is the essence of what we call sin. And there are many ways, as I've tried, that we can perceive the truth of this. We can talk about it as I've tried in international terms, national terms, local terms, but for me... This hits most close to home in personal terms. When I look at the man in the mirror, if I'm honest, I, I see a man who frequently complains about the injustices of other people, but often chooses to ignore or make excuses for my own slight of others. I can clearly see the sin in other people. Not a problem. You're struggling, I'll let you know. But I struggle. It doesn't come easy to fully confess my own tendency, my own tendency to know what is right. I know it. It's not debatable. I know it. And yet, I still choose to do what is wrong. And again, I do it without much thought for how my decisions, how my actions impact others. On my own, left to my own devices, I am a sinner. I am a persecutor. I am unjust. 
I contribute to the tears of humanity. I contribute to the frustration, the loneliness, and disillusionment of this world. And when I am unjust, when I sin, I die. Every time I sin, I die a little bit more. In the end, my sin, your sin, the inhumanity and oppression we are all guilty of results in the greatest injustice of all, which Solomon also calls out. It results in the greatest injustice of all, which is death. Beyond, behind the problem of death lies the reality of sin in the universe. When I die, and I'm just talking about me, but when I die, the coroner, and I don't like to even think about this, but when I die, there will be a coroner who will fill out my death certificate. And as a pastor, I have had occasion to see those certificates. And if you haven't, there's a space on that piece of paper that says cause of death. If we really understand the problem, then the answer in that space will be the same for you as it will be for me. Cause of death Sin, not sickness, not cancer, not an accident, not old age, sin. That's the problem. Death is the greatest injustice of all. God did not create life to be finite. Do you know that, right? That's why you're here. You know in that wrestling with right and wrong, in that crying out about injustice, what's in, in, weaved into that is we know we are created to be everlasting. We are created to be everlasting. That's why death is the ultimate wrong. That is why death is the enemy. Death is the enemy. Death is the greatest affront to the Lord's purposes and plans for this world. Death is not a comfort. Don't believe anybody who tells you that. Death is not a comfort. And I know you're right now got your Bible open. You who are really savvy going, wait a second. Isn't that what Solomon says? Solomon never declares death to be a comfort. That's why we got to be careful here. When Solomon declares that those who die are happier than the living, those who are still alive, you need it throughout this whole book. Remember, Solomon is saying, I'm going to operate the way we all want to operate the way we have to operate if there is no God. Solomon is speaking solely from an earthly perspective, a world without God. That's why if there's no afterlife, if, 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 no, one can, if no one and nothing moves beyond life under the sun, if that's all there is, that's why there's no talk of souls. That's why there's no talk here of heaven or hell. On our own, Solomon is saying, all we can see, on our own, all we can see is that we die, that our bodies become dirt. If life under the sun is all there is, then our death is the same as an animal. And again, Solomon is not denying as human beings we are made in the image of God. What he's doing is saying, okay, if we're just going to look at the empirical evidence, on the surface of things, from what we can see, our physical bodies turn to dust just like the animals. See, what Solomon's doing, and that's why this book to me is brilliant, Solomon is honestly wrestling, but he's also provoking us to see it just doesn't make sense. Death cannot be the last word in our lives. Death is the greatest injustice of all because it violates God's created purpose and intent for us. So what do we do? I mean... 
The world in which we live can be a very dark and bleak place in the face of this injustice we've talked about, our oppression and sin, the reality of death. Solomon confesses, if that's it, if that's what it is, if that's it, all we've got, it's enough to make one wonder whether they're better off than the animals. And therefore, many of us confronting a world without God or doubting that God exists, many of us choose to live like an animal. We choose to live like an animal, to live wildly without conscience. And maybe some of us, that was a season of our lives. Maybe that's a secret part of your life right now, to live like an animal, to live wildly without conscience, to satisfy every base desire you have, figuring all the while it's every person for themselves. But Solomon here and earlier in the book has cautioned us against this approach. There is no advantage or satisfaction in living this way, only frustration and pain. I think it's fascinating throughout our history as a species, but more and more in recent days, we have this tendency towards monster movies. And if you ever think about your classic monster movies, those represent the very, that very one solution of just living like an animal. The werewolf, who when the moon comes out gets to just rage and roar. The vampire, who sucks the life off of other people but lives in the darkness. And one of the things that's interesting, though it seems to be changing, which maybe we ought to read a little more Ecclesiastes, is that it used to be back in the day when we told stories of werewolves and vampires, we said that's no way to live. It seems really appealing to live forever, sucking on the blood of other people. It seems really appealing to be an animal, to let the animal out. But being an animal, living like a monster, isn't all it's cracked up to be. Another approach in the face of the world, as Solomon describes it, is just to, hold, to fold our hands, to fold our hands, to bury our head in the sand and act like we were never born. To act as if we're not a part of this broken, messed up world. Solomon assures us that this too is a path doomed for failure. In Hebrew, when he talks about folding our hands here, he actually describes it as being like eating our own flesh. If you just give up, you're going to ruin yourself. You'll kill yourself by starvation. You're a part of this world. To, to, to continue to rift on our monster theme, living like a zombie ain't no way to live either. Beloved, we can't give up. We must not give in. The great longing for justice in our hearts is not a mistake or a lie. Solomon wants us to understand it's God-given. We must continue to wrestle with oppression in this world, the impulse towards sin within ourselves, and Solomon offers us a third way. We don't have to live like an animal. We don't have to live as if we don't exist, as if we're not a part of this world. Solomon offers us a third way. He writes, Better is one handful of tranquility than two hands with toil and chasing after the wind. In a world full of, of oppression and injustice, Solomon writes, go out there and work, not out of envy or competition, but with quiet confidence, daily contentment, and a sense of calling. Rather than be consumed by an insatiable desire to get ahead, be satisfied in your calling to serve others. Beloved, it's been a couple of weeks. Are you asking God? If you ask, he will answer. I don't know how, I don't know when. Are you asking God, what is your calling? Or are you continuing to just do your job? You are not gonna be satisfied if you just do your job. Because it's more than that. 
Each of you has a responsibility. Each of us a responsibility. You've been placed where you are. If you've let the Lord place you, where he seeks to work and reveal himself through you, make this world a better place through you. But you have to wrestle with that calling rather than just settle for a job. Solomon, in other words, is telling us to stop trying to change the world and instead be a faithful witness in it. Stop trying to change the world because we can't, but be a faithful witness in it. There's a better scripture that I think of when I read these words of Solomon. It's one of my favorite scriptures. It's from the prophet Micah. You probably don't know much about Micah, but you probably have heard this verse before. When through Micah, God says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What is good? What does the Lord require of you? Micah writes, To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We contribute to the justice of this world when we do our part, when we recognize our work matters to God and live out of our call with love and compassion, leaving the final judgment of others to the Lord. To walk humbly with our God is to confess the limits of our own application of justice. History and experience teach us over and over again, every leader, all political systems come up short. If you are looking for a Messiah in politics, Good luck with that. Righteousness will not ultimately prevail. Justice will not be done when our hope is in ourselves. We don't need a better law or a higher court. We need divine intervention. We need divine intervention. And beloved, why are we here? Why are we not just putting our heads in our hands and weeping through the rest of this service? Because we have a savior in Christ. We have a kingdom to look to that is not of this world. And that is why Solomon's repeated counsel to us is not to give in, not to give up, but to keep looking to the Lord. We are to trust that God will judge, to trust that God will set things right. From start to finish, the Bible reveals a God of justice who cares deeply for his people. How do we know? Beyond the words on the page. Solomon didn't have it yet, but he believed it. But how do we know? Because in Jesus, we have a God who suffered injustice with us in order to end it forever for us. Hear that. God in the flesh in Christ suffered injustice with us in order to end it forever for us. When the Lord came to us to address oppression and injustice, we treated him the same way we treat each other. Right? We treated him the same way we treat each other. And God willingly, knowingly became a victim of sin and evil. Jesus faced the imperfections and corruptions of human justice that we cry out about. Jesus was tried in court, falsely accused though innocent, and yet convicted as guilty. Jesus suffered and died with no one to comfort him. And Jesus conquered the greatest injustice of all, death. 
And one day he will return to end all oppression and injustice forever. But we have questions while we wait. We are impatient while we wait. I get it. I get it. I, Solomon gets it. I've got my questions too. They're very similar to his. They may be similar to yours. I get it. But in the midst of our questions, beloved, are we going to throw in with the wolves? Are we going to throw in with the wolves and let the world get our goat? Are we going to hide behind the facade of our Christian bubble like lost sheep and act like the world out there doesn't exist? Or are we going to follow our shepherd? Picking up our cross and trusting Jesus to lead us beyond the valley of the shadow of death into life everlasting. All the answers we seek are not before us. I'm, I'm acknowledging that all the answers we seek are not before us, but the answer of God in Christ. Experiencing the injustice of this world, dealing with the oppression we promote and endure and promising to return to finish this work once and for all gives us perspective and it gives us hope. The answer to the problem of evil is Jesus. The final solution to all the oppression in this world is Christ. I acknowledged earlier, and gosh, it was hard to say. It's so easy, much easier to write. I acknowledged earlier, because I don't even like to acknowledge that this is true, but it is. I acknowledged earlier, when I am unjust, when I sin, I die. And I said, every time I sin, I die a little bit more. And this is most certainly true. But thanks to Jesus, beloved, every time I confess my sin, my need for Christ, I live. Every time I look to and rely on Jesus, I am resurrected just a little bit more into who I was created to become. We sit here today and we can be part of the problem or we can embrace our invitation, the grace of God, to be a part of the solution. You, each and every one of you, you can make a difference, one action, one person at a time. By seeking the common good of those around you. We can't meet every need, but we can meet some. We can't heal every hurt, but we can heal some. We can't fill the hole but we can make it less deep. We can't even things out, but we can tip the scales the other way. With each and every cup of cold water we share, every meal we offer, every kind word, with every effort we make to clothe, heal, and affirm the image of God in another person, we point towards the horizon of something more than this life under the sun. A day is coming when every tear will be wiped away and every wrong will be righted. The dawn of justice in the midst of a fallen world begins to rise when we look for God. When we as Christians reflect and share Jesus, the good news of Christ, in word and deed with others. Amen? Amen. Amen.